We praise you, Father. You are worthy of all of our praise, honor, glory. We recognize that we exist for you. You created us for yourself uh, to glorify you, especially in a loving relationship. And so we draw near to you this morning. And we ask that you would speak to us from your word. You'd open up these pages and help us to understand that we might be able to draw near to you and experience your presence once again. Uh, so lead us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 20 through 28, page 654 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And uh, we're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And we are at this section that I'm entitling the super priest. Do you like superheroes? So, okay, so I, I have a little video clip for you to, you know, see if, uh, to kind of set the stage here. So, Mr. Incredible, do you right. have a secret identity? Every superhero has a secret identity. I don't know a single one who doesn't. Who wants the pressure of being super all the time? Of course I have a secret identity. Can you see me in this at the, um, at the, at the supermarket? Come on. I would want to go shopping as Elastigirl, you know what I mean? Super ladies, they're always trying to tell you their secret identity. Think it'll strengthen the relationship or something like that. <laughs> I said, girl, I don't want to know about your mild-mannered alter ego or anything like that. I mean, you tell me you are a super mega ultra lightning babe, that's all right with me. I'm good. I'm good. No matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. I mean, sometimes I just want it to stay saved, you know, for a little bit. I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up this mess. Can we keep it clean for, for ten minutes? <laughs> you get to that point. Wait, Please? Don't, get, don't get up there. <laughs> All right, you got the point there. Uh, superheroes have a secret identity, right? Okay. Uh, if you were going to go fight Superman, once you found out he was Superman, you probably would run away, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, another part of that, it always baffles me. Okay, You know like when they sh fight Superman, they shoot the gun at him, and they end up sh shooting all the bullets at him, and then they run out of bullets? All right, can you hear me? Okay, well, so they run out of bullets, and then what do they do? No, they throw the gun at the Superman, right? I mean, that's like, what, the bullets don't hurt, but the gun is going to hurt them somehow? This is crazy. Well, anyway, that's beside the point, actually. The Son of God took on a second nature, that of humanity, and appeared on the scene of history as the mild-mannered Jesus. No one guessed he was God. The wise men were on to something when they worshipped him and bowed down to him, but nobody guessed he was God. It was all a part of God's grand plan to bring salvation through 
the super priest, the God-man Jesus. Look at our passage, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 20. He says, none of this happened without an oath. For others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. But this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Now remember, our author here is trying to persuade a group of Jewish believers who are being persecuted because of their Christianity. They're being tempted to go back to Judaism, and he's trying to persuade them to hold the line, to stay the course because of the superiority of Jesus Christ. So let's look at God's grand plan through this super priest, okay? Verses 20 through 22, we see the super priest brings a better covenant. He started out there, if you noticed, talking about this oath that uh, the priest, the normal priest, didn't have this oath, but this oath was made for the priest who would come in the order of Melchizedek, and he quotes Psalm 110 there, and brings out, because of that, there's a better covenant. He brings this better covenant. So, first of all, he is superior because of the divine oath. The Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron, rested on the divine command but no oath was given as there was for the Melchizedek priesthood, okay? Suggesting the superior dignity of the Melchizedek priesthood. Now, if everything I just said was like, what are you even talking about, Larry? It's because over the last couple Sundays, we've developed this concept of Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek. And so I've already talked about this in the last two sermons. I'm not going to you know, talk about it more today. So if you need to go back and listen to those sermons, okay? I do understand, and especially in the summertime, we go on vacation and stuff, so we miss. But, so if you need to know more, go back and listen to that. But just recognize Jesus comes in this superior priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, and it's superior because of this oath that God makes for it. Now, he is superior because he brings a better covenant. That's what he says, and that's what we really want to emphasize here now is verse 22. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Covenant, a uh, in the 
uh, Hebrew, uh, diatheke in the Greek, is a very important concept in the whole Bible, especially in the book of Hebrews. Covenant is actually used, the word in the Greek, diatheke, 19 times in this book. So it's important for us to understand this. Now, we're not going to, div- to talk a lot about covenant today because we're going to see in chapter 8 and chapter 9, it talks a lot about covenant. So we'll develop that concept more as we go through chapter 8 and 9. But just to, uh, to, to re- let you know, a covenant is very simply a binding agreement between two individuals or two groups of people, okay? Lots of covenants in the ancient Near East. Uh, A lot of covenants mentioned in the Bible where we had the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, even predicting a new covenant. Marriage is actually a covenant where you make oaths to each other, vows to each other. Uh, So covenant, that binding agreement is a very important principle and what he's saying here is is that jesus brings a better covenant than better than the old covenant now that doesn't mean that the old covenant was bad okay the old covenant wasn't bad it was just temporary and imperfect because it depended on humans okay Uh, moses actually told the people at the end of his writing in Deuteronomy 31:16 that they would end up breaking the covenant thus setting things up for the new covenant which the old testament predicts a better covenant because of the super priest okay now the super priest in this covenant that he brings saves us completely this is the part i really like okay he saves us completely look at verse 23 Now, many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. He saves us completely. Remember the video, Mr. Incredible? You know, he says, uh, why can't you just stay saved? You know, he's talking about the world. It's because Mr. Incredible isn't that incredible. Okay? Nothing compared to Jesus who brings a salvation, who brings and that saves us completely, those who repent of their sins and place their faith in him. And so we see this remarkable salvation that he, that he brings. He saves us Completely. Now, according to the passage, the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood is inferior because all the priests die. And that's what he says there, isn't it? They all die. They can't fulfill, they can't complete their mission because they end up dying. Josephus uh, reckoned that there were 83 high priests from Aaron to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD so the whole time period where they had high priests uh, he says there's 83 and he lived closer to the time than I did so I figure he's probably at least somewhat accurate but so but but they all died Aaron was high priest then he dies his son was high priest then he dies etc 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 and everyone not just priests everyone dies 
When you look at the world, there's only two people in the Bible that are mentioned that didn't die. Uh, Enoch and Elijah. And we see in the, in the book of Revelation, there's these two witnesses, and many think it was, at least one of them was Elijah. Perhaps the other one was even Enoch, and they end up dying, don't they? Everybody dies. And it's tragic. Death devastates us because it's unnatural. And you would say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Everybody dies. How can that be unnatural? That sounds very natural. No, it is not. Because that is not the way we were originally designed. We were originally designed to live forever. And when, if you are born again, and when you, uh, at the resurrection, when you receive your resurrected body, you will live forever. And that was the way we were originally designed. Uh, but tragically, that's not the way it is right now. And we all experience death, loved ones, other people, and so forth, and then eventually ourselves. Uh, it shouldn't be a surprise to us when people die. Because of the curse and because everybody dies and it is so tragic. But it does break our hearts because it's not the way it's supposed to be. But there is one who died but then three days later rose again. And he is the first fruits of that resurrection body that all of us can have if we put our trust in Jesus Christ. And he will never die. And that's the point here. Because Jesus is alive forevermore, he saves us completely. Unlike these priests were able to do. So what does it mean that he saves us completely? Let me read from David Allen's commentary on this passage. He says, The salvation to which the author refers indicates salvation from sin and salvation resulting in a right relationship with God. So we're saved from our sin, but saved also into a personal relationship with God himself. A crucial question surrounds the meaning of ace ta pantales, which is the Greek phrase, which is rendered here as completely. Okay, Three possibilities exist. Number one, degree in the sense of to the utmost degree or completely. That's how this translation is translated. Number two, temporally, in the sense of forever. I think the NIV translates it like that, uh, forever. Or three, both degree and time, completely and forever. The third option best captures the meaning. And I agree with David Allen. He saved us completely forever. That is good news. In other words, if you are born again, if you have repented of your sins, placed your faith in Christ and him alone for your salvation, you are saved, you are born again, and if you're born again, you can't get unborn again. That's good news. Because it would be a real bummer if you had to get born again and unborn again and born again and unborn again. Every time you sin, you lose your salvation, and then you got to get saved again. From I mean, if, if that's the case, none of us are going to make it. If it depended on me, I'm sunk. That's the beauty of the new covenant. It depends on him and what he did for me. 
I know me. I am fickle. I am imperfect. But he is super. He is wonderful, incredible, awesome. Now, he says, though, you've got to look at the passage in verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Not everybody is saved. Most people are not saved. We are only saved if we come to God, to the real God, not any false gods, and through Jesus, that is, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ. Any other gospel is a false gospel. We have to have the right God and the right gospel. But if we do, we are saved completely according to this passage. And then it goes on, just to kind of throw in an extra little deal there, since he's al- he always lives to intercede for them. That means Jesus is praying for you if you're a believer. He's interceding for you. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he's talking to Dad and saying, I died for these people. He's praying for us. Look, at this This is not just the only place that mentions this. Look at, uh, sorry, I get carried away. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Another passage, kind of fascinating in Romans 8. It not only says Jesus prays for us, it says the Holy Spirit prays for us. In verse 26 of Romans chapter 8, the Spirit prays for us. Then in verse 33, he goes on, he says, Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So we see the Spirit intercedes for us. Jesus intercedes for us. That means we got two-thirds of the Trinity praying to the other third. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? Okay. Now, and I, you know, so, so this, is, this is the incredible aspect of why we're saved completely. Now, here's how it works. Look at 1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2. He explains in more detail how this intercession works. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children... I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. Now, so he starts it out by saying to us, he wrote this letter to this church to help them overcome sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice or propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Now notice there, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, but he's praying to the Father, talking to the Father, but as our advocate. He's advocating for us in our behalf. When we sin, he says, look, I was crucified, I died, I paid the penalty for their sins. It's covered. He's on our side advocating for us before the Father. And that's what's taking place in this intercession. 
Fascinatingly, this was even predicted in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53, verse 12. Isaiah 53 is that great passage that predicts that Messiah would die in our behalf, that he would be crucified, or it says pierced, uh, to pay the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. But then at the end of the chapter, it has him somehow after being killed alive again insinuating the resurrection, but then saying that he's interceding for us. So we have this, this is God's grand plan. Let me read from F.F. Bruce. He says, whoops, wrong book. He says, and this is important for us because we might get this wrong. When I said two-thirds of the Trinity praying to the other third, okay, you might think, well, two-thirds really like us and one-third is kind of like, Ugh. Okay, that's not the case. Listen to what he says. He is not to be thought of as an orante standing ever before the Father with outstretched arms like the figures in the mosaics of the catacombs and with strong crying and tears pleading our cause in the presence of a reluctant God but as a throned priest king asking what he will from a father who always hears and grants his requests. Our Lord's life in heaven is his prayer. And so he is powerfully received by the father, but not only that, because the father himself wants us to come to him. Alan brings this out in, four, in his commentary. He says, the infinitive to intercede should not be restricted in meaning only to intercessory prayer since the verb means to meet or transact with one person in reference to another. The word indicates every act by which the Son, in dependence on the Father, in the Father's name, and with the perfect concurrence of the Father, takes his own with him into the Father's presence in order that whatever he himself enjoys in the communications of his Father's love may become theirs also. In other words, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God himself wants us to come into his presence. The thing that kept us from his presence was our sin. So the Father sent his Son to deal with the sin problem so that we can come into his presence at any time. He invites us, God wants us to experience his presence, to come right into the Holy of Holies, his throne room. Now, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Think about that. If God is on your side, and if you have repented of your sins and followed his plan by, by re personally receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and through faith, if God is on your side, what do you got to fear? There's no reason for fear of anything. No reason to worry about anything because God is on your side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? I want to share with you my story of how I got called into the ministry. Now, it's not the same as other people's callings, and so they don't have to be this dramatic if you sense God leading you into the ministry. But mine was rather dramatic. So I want to share it with you because 
it really, I think, brings out this idea of why you don't need to fear. When I was 21 years old, I totally surrendered to Jesus as my Lord. And about six months later, I sensed a calling from God into the ministry. But it was a very specific calling. This is how he called me. I sensed, I had an impression that God said, I want you to take your stepdad, Rick, to Montgomery, Alabama, and pray for him, and he will be healed. Then I want you to go to Fort Worth, Texas, and get your friend Ken out of a cult. Then I want you to move to Arizona and go to Bible college because I'm calling you into the ministry. Okay? That's pretty specific. Now, I got some advice, and I didn't just jump on this all on my own without hearing from other people and so forth. I asked my pastor if he sensed me that I had the calling and so forth and so all that, but I didn't have to be afraid of anything. So I talked to my stepdad. I said, you want to go down to Alabama? He says, okay. So so he drove me down to Montgomery, Alabama. When we got there, we didn't know what we were supposed to do. So we opened up the telephone book. You know, they used to have those things back then. Okay? And, uh, and, and we turned it to the yellow pages under churches, closed our eyes, and went like that, and then called the church and asked them if they prayed for the sick. Because you know, we didn't know what else to do. And the guy said, sure, come on down. So we, we went down there. And the pastor, he said, well, okay, the two of us will just put our hands on Rick, on his head. And, and then he said this very simple prayer. It wasn't, you know, dramatic and, you know, whatever, you know. He just said very simple prayer. And then when he was done, though, he just looked up at me and he said, did you feel that? Because <laughs> he was shocked, okay. I was shocked, too, because it felt like electricity was going out of my fingers into my stepdad's head. And I said, I sure did. And then, and then he said, I really believe that God has done something here, but God will show you, Rick, when you're healed. So don't stop taking your medicine until he reveals to you that you're healed. Well, Rick, God did show him. That's another story, but God did show him. Uh, and he stopped taking his, his Dilantin and uh, he had the grand mal seizures a whole bit uh, for, for, of epilepsy and he was totally healed. Uh, that was 35 years ago. Never had a seizure since. Okay. So, I mean, that was, that was awesome. I got to be a part of that by going to Montgomery, Alabama, you know, and opening up a phone book. Well, then, then he drove me to Fort Worth, Texas. Now, I hadn't talked to my friend Ken in a couple of years. I had no idea he was even going to church, let alone involved in a cult. So I come to his door, and I said, hey, Ken, uh, I really felt like God told me that you were involved in a cult, and I was supposed to help you. Okay, well, that's kind of a weird way of saying it, but, you know, he says, well, I'm going to a church, but it's not a cult. I said, well, let's talk. And so we were talking about it, and I was asking questions, and boy, did it seem like a really strange group, and I, I felt like it really was. And so I said, I said, well, call the pastor. So he calls the pastor, and the three of us are in his, in his living room, and I began debating the pastor on salvation, because, you know, you get salvation wrong, as we saw you get it all wrong, okay? So I talked to him, and he believed in works and this and that and everything else. And so as we're debating, Ken, in the middle of it, he goes, Larry, you're right. This is a cult. (laughs) 
And, uh, you know, the guy got really mad, the pastor, okay? But he left, and then I helped him find another church, you know, and he found a good church where he actually met his wife later and everything. So he's back in Rochester now, and so, so everything happened. That was great, right? Okay, well, then I hitchhiked from there because my stepdad had dropped me off, and he went back up I-35 up to uh, Rochester, okay? So I hitchhiked from there to Arizona and went to Bible college and uh, became a pastor, okay? So, but... I didn't have a dime, by the way, no money at all in any of this. Hitchhike to Arizona <laughs> you know, and go, and go to, to, to college, you know. That was, it, was, uh, it was wild. But I had no fear because you can take a step of faith into the unknown and not worry about a thing. Live on the cutting edge of life because God has your back. He will take you and help you through this. You can take risks for the kingdom of God and watch God come through. Or you can just live a boring life and watch TV. It's your choice, right? But you don't have anything to fear because if God is for you, the Son and the Spirit are interceding to the Father in our behalf, and the Father wants us to come anyway. If God is for us, who can be against us? He goes on, verses 26 through 28, the super priest offers a once-for-all sacrifice. Look at how this ends. He says, for this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. So the super priest offers a once-for-all sacrifice. Now, the Roman Catholics believe that the Lord's Supper is a re-sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. This passage completely rejects that view. It is a once-for-all. He died once. No more sacrifices. This is it because he provided full forgiveness for all of our sin, past, present, and future sins when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, His sacrifice is perfect, and he saves us forever with this sacrifice. Now, he starts out in verse 26, and we see the qualifications of the super priest. He says he must be holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What he's basically saying there, holy, that means he was set apart for this, for this calling. Sinless. He had to be sinless because if he had sinned, he'd need a sacrifice for his own sins, and his sacrifice would be worthless. Not, uh, then it says, undefiled, not corrupted by the sinful nature, and then separated from sinners. Most scholars believe this is a reference to him ascending to heaven and then exalted above the heavens. The perfect plan through the God-man. F.F. Bruce talks about this. He says, he is the unique mediator between God and man 
because he combines Godhead and manhood perfectly in his own person. In him, God draws near to men, and in him, men may draw near to God with the assurance of constant and immediate access to God himself. The assurance of constant and immediate access to God himself through the perfect God-man, Jesus, who is both God and man. Now, we see here, verse 27, we ask a question, how can one person satisfy God's demand of justice for all people? How can one person's death be enough to provide forgiveness for all the sins of all people, potentially, okay? Well, look at verse 27. He says, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sin, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. That becomes the important factor, okay? How can one person satisfy God's demand of justice for all? First of all, he, the perfect priest, offered himself the perfect sacrifice, making him the super priest. So how can one person satisfy God's demand of justice for all people? Well, first of all, Jesus was punished as our substitute. I've already mentioned that. But let's look at Isaiah 53, verse 5, to see more clearly God's plan, okay? Isaiah 53 is that great chapter that predicts, this is the Old Testament, predicting what Messiah would do. And so here we see what his work on earth through the crucifixion really did. Look at verse 5. It says, But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Now notice there, he was punished for our peace. We were the guilty party. He was the innocent party. But as our substitute, he took on the punishment in our place so that we don't have to. We don't have to experience the wrath of God because he experienced the wrath of God those six hours that one Friday. He goes on, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. And so... We're the guilty party, but he's the innocent one, but he paid the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. Now, he had to be human to be able to identify with us and to be able to die because God can't die, contrary to the God is Dead movement and Friedrich Nietzsche, okay? God can't die. So he had to be human in order to die. He had to be sinless, otherwise he would need forgiveness, just like every other priest. But he also had to be God. Jesus' deity provides the infinite value. How can one person die for a bunch of other people? One person can't unless that one person is of infinite value. And as God, he is of infinite value. Stephen Charnock uh, talks about this. He explains how this kind of works. Okay, He says, the blood of Jesus 
received its value from his sonship, the eternal relation he stood in to his father. Since sin is an infinite evil, as being committed against an infinite God, no mere creature can satisfy for it. Nor can all the holy works of all the creatures be a compensation for one act of sin, because the vastest heap of all the holy actions of men and angels would never amount to an infinite goodness, which is necessary for the satisfaction of an infinite wrong. You see, our sins are infinitely horrible because of their, their sins against the infinitely perfect one, God. So it needed an infinite satisfaction. But God in his infinite worth is the one who could provide for that. So Jesus had to be both God and human. It's brilliant. Okay? Who could have thought of this? God in his, it's incredible when you think about this. And we see this in the Bible. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a human being. Jesus is God and took on a second nature, that of humanity, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could come into the very presence of God Almighty. And he invites us, if you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ and him alone for your salvation, if you've been born again, he invites you to come into his presence anytime. Now, it concludes in verse 28, speaking of how he was perfected. It says, for the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't perfect and then he got perfected. His work was perfected as he accomplished it. It was completed the phrase emphasizes the permanent effectiveness of his priestly work. So God's plan is perfect. Because of the God-man who is perfect, our super priest. Now God's plan is brilliant. If we had time, and we don't, we could walk through all of these verses that in the Old Testament they predict uh, how God is going to bring about his grand plan. Now, what's fascinating about this is from an Old Testament perspective, if you read these things, you wouldn't just from the Old Testament figure out the plan, okay? It's not until after Jesus dies and rises again from the dead that it all makes sense. But then you look back at the plan and you go, wow, he told us this was going to happen over and over again. And he did it that way, I believe, because if Satan knew, number one, that by killing Jesus it would provide forgiveness for us, he'd have never done it, right? And if Satan knew that Jesus was actually God, he probably wouldn't have tried to kill him because you can't kill God for very long, apparently. <laughs> okay, See what I'm saying? But this whole plan, the superhero secret identity that gets revealed at the resurrection of Jesus, this is what brings about our salvation. The super priest king reveals his identity fully 
at his resurrection. He is Jesus. He is God, and he is God's plan. Now, here's the question. Do you want to get in on God's plan? Let's pray.